Welcome to the Hertie School of Governance. The Hertie School. Hertie School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. As a school of governance, we see our mission in fostering these important discussions. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. Good afternoon. Um, this is a great moment uh, for me personally, but more importantly for the Hertie School and especially for the Center on, on International Security Policy, which we began setting up not that long ago. Um, as you know, uh, the Center has started to host occasional events, not only for the student community, but for the larger uh, community here in town. Um, just by way of announcing on November 26, uh, we will be having an event on uh, nuclear arms control, um, which uh, uh, everybody is invited to, uh, to come to uh, again. And I want to just say that uh, we are really pleased that one of our corporate sponsors is represented today, NXP. Uh, without support from NXP, we couldn't have started to uh, hire to create a professorship uh, for cyber issues in general. And uh, so thanks and, and, and welcome uh, this morning. In military, uh, in, in the development of military technology, uh, it, it's relatively easy to see how each time there is an, an important innovation, let's say the introduction of the automobile, or the airplane 100 or 120 years ago or so, um, the military found out that you could take advantage of that technology and do things better, shoot more quickly, uh, actually fly over other countries' borders, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So technology has, um, because it, it has developed so rapidly, um, acquired an ever-increasing role in military affairs. In my, in my role as, as the organizer of the Munich Security Conference, I couldn't responsibly um, organize discussions about current and future issues um, of uh, military strategy, of international security, without experts who know about the technology. It's no longer good enough to only have the generals or the admirals um, in the room, or the diplomats for that matter. We need people who can intelligently discuss both aspects, the, 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 the strategic, the military, uh, and the technology aspects. So um, welcome again. We have uh, a wonderful speaker today. I want to introduce uh, Katrin Suder. Uh, and I want to announce that Katrin Suder has not only been a supporter of the Hertie School for a long time, she uh, joined the Board of Trustees, I think three years ago, more than three years ago, and has continued to serve on the board even though she has been, as many of you know, she has been a um, leading um, uh, person in uh, our Ministry of Defense uh, for the last, what is it, three years, three and a half years or so. Um, she left the ministry only uh, earlier this year, bringing with her, of course, enormous experience in um, 
how to run a defense ministry, uh, how to spend the money that, uh, that the Bundestag uh, accords or does not accord to our defense sector, uh, how to prepare for quote unquote the next war, hopefully how to prepare for maintaining the peace uh, instead. So I want to just thank you, uh, Katri, for, uh, for being here with us, for having agreed uh, to be from now on present at Hertie as a, f as, a, as a senior fellow with our Center on uh, International Security Policy. So we can count on, on your expertise and your contributions um, uh, in the future. Uh, I should have said earlier that, of, uh, and, and you've seen that in the press, Katrin Suda also assumed recently the chairmanship, the chairpersonship of the uh, Advisory Council on Digitalization uh, created by Chancellor Merkel by the uh, German federal government. So, welcome. Constanze Stelzenmüller, who sits right in front of me, uh, was for, for many years a, a journalist specializing on foreign policy, security policy, defense issues, uh, working with Die Zeit. Uh, after she left Die Zeit, she became uh, a think tanker. Uh, she ran for a while the office of the German Marshall Fund here in Berlin, and she has been for the last several years um, as one of the few, I think too few, Germans uh, working in a think tank institution, in this case, famous Brookings Institution uh, in Washington, D.C. Um, so what we'll now do is we'll invite Katrin to uh, offer her views, to speak to us, and uh, uh, after your introductory speech, we'll have a brief introduction, and we, we want, I certainly want to give the student body student body is well represented here. Uh, at the end of this brief hour, we only have one hour, uh, uh, chances for questions. So if you have a question, um, you know, let me know at the end. We'll, we'll devote the last 15, hopefully maybe even 20 minutes to Q&A. So uh, would you both join us here? And Catherine, maybe you want to So um, hello everybody also from my side, thanks for the introduction and uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I look forward to the discussions now and in the following months with uh, many of you. Allow me to start with a bit of a broader look at the security context. Um, when I joined the German MOD in 2014, the world was a different one. I remember well when I started, the minister told me uh, core of my job would be to do armament, procurement and maintenance of weapon system in itself quite a big a nightmare job, I know. But we had a pretty stable security environment way back then. But then came August 2014 and the slaughtering of the Jesides by Daesh. Germany decided, and this was a clear turning point, to deliver weapons into a crisis area. I was the responsible state secretary to orchestrate the German government decision-making process. Same year, escalation of the Crimea crisis. Russian aggression bringing back our dark nightmares about a confrontation between East and West. Same year, Ebola crisis. On top, terror attacks in Europe increased dramatically. On top, some 
geostrategic changes, I like to call them, Trump, Brexit, North Korea escalation. It is a different security situation, it is a different world, with huge implications for defense and security policies. For me, the most difficult aspect in all of this is that these developments tend to, let's say, put at risk our foundation, the rule-based order with global institutions and governance. On top of all of this, coming to the focus of our session today, a new dimension, cyber. Cyber attacks have become an integral part of warfare. It is no longer science fiction. It is happening, and it's increasingly with not only virtual but real impact on people. Cyber is the flip side of digitalization. A core driver behind digitalization is hyperconnectivity. Everything is connected. By 2020, there will be, and these numbers are always huge, but I take this one, by 2020, there will be around 25 billion connected devices. Half of it will be machine to machine, meaning it's a connection of things in the physical world, buildings, thermostats, energy grids, pacemakers, cars, railways, you name it. Everything is connected, everything will be breached, everything will be hacked. And in the meantime, cyber attacks have reached our core critical infrastructures. A few example cases, electricity, Ukraine 2014, 2015, more than 200,000 people without power for several hours. Banking, Bangladesh 2016, hacking off the SWIFT transaction system, stealing $80 million from Bangladesh Central Bank, the SWIFT system, hacked. Democratic structures, in Germany 2015, German Bundestag 2018, foreign office, same thing in many other countries. And by the way, not only old economy, old legacy IT, no, let's take Yahoo, 2014, 500 million data sets stolen. And many of the attacks, if we analyze them, by the way, are not very sophisticated. For me, cyber is one, if not the, core threat out there. So what makes it so troublesome? It's the core characteristics they have. It's relatively cheap, at least if you combine it with a fighter jet, or if you combine it with a tank or what have you. It's relatively cheap, it's difficult to detect an attribute, and its potential impact is disastrous. And it's developing fast, it's a race. And this is why many military services, also the Bundeswehr, have opened up a new dimension, adding cyber and information space to the dimensions land, air, sea. This is not, not something you do every day to open up a new service. In addition to the defense activities, what is missing, and from my perspective, urgently needed, is global regulation, is standardization, is rules. A key area of foreign policy, but in a completely new field, and with very, if not diverging, interest from the different states. Cyber is the flip side of digitalization. Digitalization is driven by hyperconnectivity, meaning more and more sensors, delivering more and more data. And it's driven by more and cheaper computing capacities. These two ingredients, so data and computing power, are also the fuel of artificial intelligence. AI is again a, if not the, key instrument in digitalization. To automate and steer processes, to analyze data and find patterns, to give answers to questions and solutions for problems. So what is the role of artificial intelligence in the various security domains? Let's start with cyber. AI can and is used as a tool to detect patterns. This helps especially in cyber defense. It can help to detect and or fend off cyber attacks. So it has an important role, but AI is pretty loud. 
in computational terms, if you want to say. So it's not the ideal tool to, for attacks. It can support attacks, again, with pattern recognition, but it's not a core offensive tool. So let's look a bit more broad in the context of AI and security. I'm sure that it will definitely play a key role. Quite the same, by the way, as it will play in most of industries and in our private lives going forward. So what is the role in security? Let's start with the digitalization of the battlefield. Digitalization is, of course, happening in the battlefield. There are more and more sensors in weapon systems. They're complemented by satellite or mobile or drone images, by internet, mobile data, you name it. And by digitizing, processing, and then presenting all of that data which is gained out there, supported and done by AI, one can gain a competitive advantage. Those who have better information, who manage to put all the information together, are more likely to win. Information superiority is a key element in conflicts. By the way, what I just mentioned, with all the information, all the processing power behind it, for the various military services, this is a huge transformation. Digitalization and AI is it for any industries. So what is said here, pretty easy to put all the information together, is a huge transformation in many dimensions, but a different talk. So looking at AI even more broadly, and Wolfgang, you mentioned it, it is a key strategic technology. AI is changing the economy big times. As with any technology, it's about supremacy. What happens if a country is economically superior or even has a monopoly because of AI? What are the implications on global value chains? What if a country combines AI with supercomputing, achieving finally the breakthrough in quantum computing? You have read probably the quotes. Elon Musk, the competition for artificial intelligence superiority is the most likely cause for World War III. Vladimir Putin, the one who becomes leader, becomes the leader in technology, will become the ruler of the world. We find ourselves in the middle of a global competition, a global tech cold war, particularly between the US and China. But it's more than a technology competition. It is a competition between values and interests, between two models of society. There's the US with a more or less open model dominated by private sector companies, especially the so-called Big Five. And then there's the Chinese model with their tech giants, Alibaba, Baidu, Tencent, dominated and benefiting from a clear government strategy and ambition, and then a rigorous execution with huge investments, controlled markets and regulation. So the questions at hand are, what should be our, meaning German, meaning European, path in the digital age? What is our aspiration? What is our ambition? Will we sit and wait, watching the new Cold War on technology? Or can we find better answers? Can we find European answers? How to deal with all the society changes? How to deal with the digitally stranded? And what are the boundaries of digitalization? Do we want everything technology possibly to happen? So much as 4i see as core developments in the space of cyber digitalization and AI. So what does it mean for us? What needs to be done? Three fields for me. First one is stop ignoring it. These developments need awareness and they need to be a top priority and a top leadership priority. Strategies and visions are similarly needed as clear plans going forward. And today in many institutions, companies, governments across Europe, this is not the case. Second, we need new approaches. Digitalization and cyber are so different, so fast, so exponentially, 
we cannot continue with the way we have been dealing with things. So what are the new approaches I see? A few examples. One thing is we need to think about new paradigms in industry, politics, and regulation. This is not easy. And we need smart brains to deal with it. But we need to continue with what GDPR has started on a European level. We need to move from old project thinking in waterfall-like manners, lasting ages if not centuries, to agile approaches with user-centric design thinking, fast delivery of first products, and then iteration. We need to change from need to know to need to share. No institution, no company can solve these questions and problems alone, and also no government. We need more Europe, not less. Scale matters in platform and data economy. Information sharing matters in cyber and defense. And resources, financial ones, but also um, personnel resources are limited. So let's do it together in Europe. And we need to change our mindset. More willingness to change, more curiosity, more risk taking. And especially we need a new leadership paradigm, which is not aiming to control, but aiming to set targets and then trust in people to deliver. We need to love and embrace, embrace our future. And finally, we need to have much more public debates and debate and discourses on these topics. And I cannot think of a better place than the Hertie School. Thanks. Perfect. Thank you so much. Uh, that was actually shorter than I thought it would be, and that gives us more time for the discussion and hopefully also for questions that uh, all of you might have. But we go straight now to a comment or comments uh, from Constance. Constance, you have the floor. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, first of all, thank you very much, Wolfgang, for inviting me and Regina and everybody from the Hurti School. It's great to be back here, um, and I always enjoy these discussions. Um, it is, as myself, as an alumna of a public policy school, school in America, I'm delighted that we have imported this model to, to Germany and that we have it in the middle of Berlin. I think this is so important, particularly in this day and age. So congratulations to all of you who are here and who are doing degrees here. And thank you, Katrin. It's always lovely to see you. It's always delightful to listen to you because you are such an inspiring, optimistic and positive speaker, um, which in this day and age is not an easy thing to do. Um, and I'm always grateful for that. I think that that is exactly what we need, a sort of positive, um, no risk, no fun, to quote, uh, to use a quote, famous quote from, I think that was the former head of the German Federal Intelligence Service who said that, and who no longer is the head of the Federal Intelligence Service, but... <laughs> <laughs> but I have to say, you know, if I had to have a motto, no risk, no fun would be, it would get pretty close. So I agree with you. Anyway, you want comments from me on this. Um, I am unfortunately well known um, as a non-expert on AI, so I'm not going to pretend to expertise that I don't have. What I think I can talk about is to situate um, the issue in, in a larger geostrategic context and um, particularly give you a take from a European who has been living and working in Washington now for the last four years, but has also been traveling uh, in Europe a lot. In fact, I uh, had to give a speech in, in Oslo yesterday at a military power seminar. And maybe this gives you, just as an anecdotal, um, in fact, I brought with me, where did I put this? 
this was the invitation to the seminar. Yeah? The Norwegians are not members of the EU. They're stalwart members of NATO. Uh, the current Secretary General of NATO is a Norwegian. They have a very strong and very old and tight bilateral military and security relationship with the United States. I think this tells you something. This tells you how quickly the moods in Europe are shifting, how worried people are, and frankly, it takes a lot to scare Norwegians. Um, <laughs> and for, for, for a major Norwegian think tank to, to frame the question of the day for Norway at a military power seminar, these days takes something. Now, just as a, the biggest maneuver NATO in the middle of Trident Juncture, of course, they did sink their own frigate, if you notice, if you heard about that. Yeah, <laughs> I think it was one of five, so the Norwegian Navy is not happy, I gather. Anyway, um, but no joking about Norwegians, enough of that. Um, here's the point I wish to make. I arrived, by the way, at the exact time that you referenced, um, I arrived in Washington at the height of the Ukraine crisis in late October 2014, and it's been a roller coaster ever since. It's been a roller coaster, particularly with the beginning of the Trump administration. And I have to say that, as you say, I used to be a journalist. Um, I was at Die Zeit. Um, I, I, actually, I was, an, in, I was an, an intern at Tagesspiegel here in Berlin. And Tagesspiegel sent me to Somalia, the Bundeswehr's first deployment. Um, I'm pretty sure I was the only intern to go to Somalia. I'm very sure I was the only one who got wounded. Um, but I was uh, later on saw the Bundeswehr in Rwanda, in the Balkans, and in Afghanistan. Um, I have seen a fair amount of stuff, and I have been through a fair amount of real transatlantic crises. Really hard, difficult, divisive, toxic crises. And I will tell you, I have never seen anything like this. I have never seen anything like what we're living through now, and I predict to you that despite the blue wave that we saw, and I think it was a blue wave in these midterms, it is about to get a lot worse. Because in many ways, for the last three or four months, while the after, pretty much after the events of the summer, the series of, of summits meetings between Malbay and Canada and, and, the, and the Helsinki meeting with Putin, um, foreign policy was put on uh, the back burner, but it will come roaring back now. And the conventional wisdom in Washington, and I think here in Berlin, seems to be that we can somehow insulate security policy and, and NATO because um, this is where the professionals are holding the fort. Frankly, I think that is a terrible mistake. I think that we are um, about to see the return of the uh, American-EU trade war. We are in the middle of a culture war. Um, a culture war we were the, for the first time seeing an American president who, no, who not only no longer believes in a rules-based international order or in globalization, but is also endorsing authoritarians, not just of the kind of uh, the, the likes of Rodrigo Duterte, but also Viktor Orban or Matteo Salvini. And of course, as he is endorsing them and enabling them at a time when these uh, authoritarians in Europe are not just trying to rebuild their own operating systems, but trying to create an, a pan-European alliance to storm the European Parliament in the spring and thereby capture the European institutions. Now, I 
think that that is less likely than that they will be able to form a blocking minority, but that will be bad enough. And the fact that there is an alliance of hard right, extreme right populists now, from America to Europe is something that should concern, should concern us deeply. Because in the great power competition framing that the American national security strategy of 2017 um, put out for the first time, um, which, and which I think is essentially correct, the two elements missing or not fully explicated in that, in that framing and which should concern us and which we need to find an answer to and in which what you talked about will play an intimate role is, is this also a competition between liberal representative democracy and illiberal authoritarian systems? And in what way will they use these new technologies? Can they use these new technologies as part of this systemic competition that we are now in the middle of? And of course the question, the big question for all of us, what role for Europe? Are we going to be rule makers or rule takers? And if I look at a lot of what is coming out of Washington these days, it seems to me that in the mind of some of the more hardline members of this administration, and I think also in the mind of the president, we are designated rule takers. And if I look at you, if I look at us, if I look at the state of Europe right now, I don't see us doing enough to prevent that. I don't see us doing enough to be rule makers. And I see many, many things, many path dependencies, inaction, laziness, including intellectual laziness, um, introversion, people being overwhelmed by uh, the <laughs> general sort of just the multiplication of crises. All of that seems to prevent us from doing the kind of things that you laid out, the adapting to the tremendous transformations that are lie ahead of us in social change, economic change, and political change to enable us to weather these changes, and again, to be rule makers rather than rule takers. We need, above all other things, we need to understand what we're in for, we need to understand what we're facing, and we need to understand what that means of us, what, what that means, what, what that challenges us to do. I'm going to leave it here because I, th I th hope that I've thrown enough provocations out into the audience for you to want to ask questions, and then we can go into some of the inter-implications in greater detail. But I will, I, will use, I will throw in one last term that I think is, is truly important here. I think that in the thinking of some of the hardliners in the American administration, which unfortunately greatly resembles the thinking of hardliners elsewhere, not least in Moscow. Um, we are seeing a return to great power competition in, on 19th century terms. In other words, by sovereign great powers which wield hard power and are able to coerce smaller, less powerful nations and actors. If you look at uh, the gentlemen currently engineering these American trade wars, they seem to be fighting the trade wars of the 1980s, using, again, means of economic coercion, tariff and sanctions. I think that this is a gigantic intellectual mistake because it attempts to deny economic interdependence. Now, perhaps America is large enough to roll back supply chains and value chains and so on. I think that's a huge mistake. I think they won't be able to. It will come at great cost to them if they attempt to do this, as they are doing now. But we can't do that. 
we live on interdependence, it's our lifeblood, and if we try to build a fortress Europe, we will cut off our lifeblood. It will be suicide. So we need to ride the wave, because otherwise we'll sink. So we need to think of all of this, what the, the conditions that we now live in, not perhaps as surviving great power competition, but in an ecosystem where political, economic, social, and technolo te technology and technological change are intimately connected. And what we need to learn to do is manage this ecosystem, adapt it, and ride that out. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Oh, I think that's been uh, a great uh, starter. We had uh, uh, Katrin laying out uh, the technological future, and we had Constanze uh, describing what is a, a pretty horrible picture of uh, current and future developments in the transatlantic space. So. Uh, let me ask you a question, uh, Katrin. Um, uh, many of the students know that I, I published a book recently, and when I speak to groups, I always get this question, so what is the biggest risk for us today? What is the biggest threat? Is it great power wars, I mean the US and Russia going to war, or a conflict with China? or trade, you just mentioned that, or is it none of the above, or maybe all of the above, plus uh, the invisible war that you described, which is uh, through digital means, which is through influencing um, political trends, uh, elections, uh, making your adversary look bad and maybe unelectable through smear campaigns in a way that uh, the hist history has never seen before. Uh, so, in other words, my question is, how important are these technological leaps that we are currently undergoing? Uh, do we still need to build a couple of tanks anyway? Or what kind of threat do, should we prepare for? How should we spend our money, in other words? Yeah, good one. Um, is it on? Can you hear me? Yeah, okay. Um, I'm not 100% sure how to, how to rate all of these uh, levers. For me, technology and the changes in digitalization, and as I said, they, 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 you know, it's a flip side. They, they both belong to each other. For me, this is the biggest development currently, because it will change um, not only warfare, it will change our whole societies, it changes the economic model, and the problem is this latency effect. It's so fast. So if we look at, there's a, there's a study published in the US um, uh, a few years ago, I think, and they looked at the adoption rate um, until 20% of the American population um, adopted a new technology. So, and for electricity, this was 45 years, roughly, all very rough in the US. And then it was for the telephone, it was, I think, 15 years or so. And for the smartphone, it was five. And this is what we're talking about. So the speed in which industries are just um, changed or disrupted, they're not existing anymore. The speed which also warfare changes is so fast, and the problem is that in most, um, how to put that in a polite way, um, in most leadership positions, leadership positions usually correlate with age. 
So there's a correlation, right? And the problem is that this group, especially in some of the more public um, uh, sector organizations, are not the group which understands technology at all. So what's happening currently? That techno technological people make implicitly or explicitly by these big companies change the faces of the world and the rules of the game. And we just sit there and, you know, we administrate that. Could be done, but it will not be successful. So, and, and to the more specific questions, do we still need tanks? Um, the problem with uh, predicting what's going to happen is that you can never. So war is, is, is always changing. I learned that in the Ministry of Defense. It's very difficult to predict what's happening. So I, I, I probably believe that we have to take care about all the dimensions. But if we now look at where to spend the money, cyber digitalization is not the most expensive thing. So this is it's not a question on money. This is what I've been always preaching. There is enough money for digitalization and for, for cyber, but the problem is scare resources. So how can, who, who are the people who can think that? Who, who are the people who understand it? Who are the people to bring, like you said at Constanza, these dimensions together in ecosystems? Thinking in ecosystems, acting in ecosystems is not something governments, public institutions, and many companies of the old economy are used to. It's my company, it's my border, so to say. And this need, the change from need to know, you know, you, you don't need to know, to need to share is so difficult in the mindset transformation. So for me, it's the biggest threat. Um, and I think we, we need more, more awareness on that. Can I come in on this? Uh, sure, but, but uh, let me ask you a question too, and then you can uh, choose which, one, uh, which ones you want to respond to. Um, yesterday or the day before, Emmanuel Macron said something which was interpreted by some, including by my, our friend Richard Haas, president. president of the Council of Foreign Relations, uh, as a call for a European army designed not only to counter possible threats, let's say, from the East, from Russia, but also to hedge against uh, whatever risks might emanate from this uh, falling apart of the transatlantic relationship. In other words, Richard said, oh, this is interesting. He proposes a European army that could also be used against the United States. So you have any comment yeah. on that? Yeah, you know what? I think that's a huge distraction. Um, I think it was a mistake for Macron to say that. And I think this talk about of a European army is um, for anybody who knows the debate and who knows the intricacies of the problem of Europeanizing defense and security is just a huge annoyance because um, it, it distracts from, from the real problem. Here's my answer to the question that you gave to Katrin just now. I think we, as responsible or uh, Western governments, have to, in this current era, responsibly plan for territorial warfare and for territorial aggression, because we have seen it happen on the periphery of Europe, yeah, with the illegal annexation of Crimea, and previously with Russian actions in Georgia. Um, we have to factor that into our defense planning. But I will also say that a further territorial aggression on the periphery of Europe, or, or even or, or much less on a NATO member, I think is the least likely thing to happen. Whereas what we are seeing every day, and not just during elections, is what strategists call measures short of war. Yeah? Disinformation, um, manipulation, uh, cyber espionage, attacks on critical infrastructure, um, what I think one, one American writer called the continuous testing and probing of Western vulnerabilities. 
And that's not just the Russians, it's the Chinese, and to some degree it's the Iranians and the, and the Turks as well, depending on, on what, what arena of uh, you're looking at. Um, and this is, unfortunately, I think the, the existential condition of open societies in an, in an interconnected world. That's not something we can stop. Um, and it's not something that we can fence ourselves off against. What we can do is to address the issue of our own vulnerabilities. And we need to do it at a time when we are challenged by illiberal authoritarian powers who are using these new technologies for social control. And who are doing, and, and who appear to be, building a degree of political and economic success on these on these new technologies. That's where we are. And at the same time, if we look at our own political systems, including in this country, we can see the, the Western nation state and the European project and international institutions and multilateralism more generally being overwhelmed by all these challenges. Which is why it is easy for the populists to suggest, as they do, that somehow representative democracy and a rules-based liberal international order are no longer appropriate for modern challenges. In other words, they are trying to make an alternate, they are trying to open an alternate vision of a society that while less free for most people, is perhaps safer for most people than the uncertainty and the individual risk of living as a free individual in a Western society. This is, this is the challenge of the day. And um, it's a big one. It's a it's it's a gigantic one. I am not sure that we are that we are even fully aware of just how big this is. I, like Katrin, tend towards optimism. In fact, I think that optimism. Yes, I'm sorry. I've been very well. I think that I think that to be able, frankly, to be a good optimist, you have to understand the magnitude of the challenge in front of you. Yeah, and then you have to say, all right, let's fight this. Um, <laughs> and I like. And I, I, and I say this, I, I say this very deliberately because I think that uh, for the first time in my adult life, um, I am now in a phase where I think I need to fight to preserve what our grandparents and parents achieved for us, which was social peace, prosperity, and peace between nations in Europe and in the world. I have not seen all these things so much at risk in my own lifetime. And I think that the, 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 the stuff that I described earlier, the developments in America and elsewhere, have put the risk of accidental escalation of, of these frictions that we're seeing um, at an all-time high. Sometimes, um, I think one gets the impression that we Germans, our public, compared, let's say, to the Americans, We've been living on different planets. Uh, the Americans throughout the last 15, 20 years, not only because of 9-11, but of stuff that happened before and happened afterwards, have been going to war, have been in, engaged in conflict management, prevention, um, etc. all along. This country, uh, when unification happened 18 years ago, um, 28 years ago, I'm sorry, um, was told by practically all political leaders from far right to far left that now Germany was ha had practically achieved paradise because we, are, we were now 
in this happy state of being surrounded only by friendly countries. And I think that has created a mindset which we are now trying to battle. We're, try, we're trying to re-educate wide segments of our public that unfortunately these, ne these friendly neighboring states that surround us have been surrounding us happily. When they look the other way, they look at chaos, terrorism, threats, war, conflict, etc. And sort of a, in other words, we need to f find a way to live on one planet and come to, as you would call it, to a, a consolidated risk and threat analysis, which we haven't had for a long time. So we have, uh, as I promised, a, minim a maximum of 15 or 16 minutes for questions. Uh, I want uh, to explain that this is uh, of course, an event which gives preference or priority to the student body. So I invite especially the student body to... Um, to Basically, if you don't look like a student, tough. If you don't look like a student, <laughs> don't even try to get the floor. That's what I'm saying. Um, and, uh, and if you could also um, make your question a short one and, and tell, uh, identify yourselves if, if you could. Um, and um, please also let us know whether your question is addressed to both or to one of the uh, speakers here in this panel. So I go to, uh, uh, let's see, we go to the gentleman in the very last row uh, back there. Thank Are you. Are you a student? <laughs> you, you look like one. How do I look? <laughs> um, yeah, so thank you very much. My name is Tim. I'm a student in the second year in the um, MPP program. You very quickly dismissed any idea of a European uh, army, as outlined by Mr. Macron. You've also said populisms, populists attack us by saying our democracy can't ensure our safety. So I'm curious on whether or not you think that in principle or even in practice, there is a link between Europeans voting together, democratically enabling a common security structure, even through an army especially considering the fact that the U.S. is pointing outside, as on your flyer, of our current common security framework. Thank you very much. Great question. Let's collect two or three, yeah. right? And then we go back. Uh, so we go to this side. Is there a student here in the back? Any students? Any students on this side? Are you a student? Yes. Good. <laughs> Hello, my name is Maximilian Gerke, and I'm an uh, international affairs student here at Hurti School. Thank you so much for the discussion. I have a question uh, to Ms. Suda. Um, you said cyber is the new uh, challenge for all military forces. And you said we need more Europe. My question, I have two questions, two short questions. The first one, um, you said more Europe. How would you propose to uh, realize this more Europe in a, in a cyber context? And secondly, what challenges lie between realizing this proposition and what challenges do you see for Germany especially? Thank you. Great question, thank you. Uh, one last one, uh, is there maybe, I'm trying to go for diversity, is there maybe also a non-male uh, participant? Back there is a, I think. A f a f <laughs> I do not look like a student, but I'm an alumna of the Heritage School, so I hope that counts. That's okay. <laughs> My name is Emma Shaberatz. 
And uh, I would also like to ask Ms. Zuder uh, to um, mention which kind of industry policies and regulation you mentioned in your speech. Thank you. All right. And then we'll, we'll take one last one. Uh, yes, here in the fourth row, uh, lady with the glasses. Um, I have a question on regulation as well. If some say that the U.S. has the advantage in AI in terms of compute and China has the advantage in terms of data, there's also speculation that the EU can have the advantage of regulation. But I also wonder how the GDPR regulation kind of um, limits the amount of data that can be used to train AI systems. So kind of this uh, lack of a balanced approach between enough regulation but then not enough regulation. All right. Let's go back to that. Katrin first. Okay, thanks for the questions. Um, they kind of build on each other. So let's start, Maximilian, I think, with yours on, on the cyber, um, how to do Europe there. Um, I think one thing is, again, sharing of information. It starts there. And especially the, the, the services. Um, they have not been used to share information. The problem is, is with cyber. Why should everybody be the same patient zero? Right? starting with the same attack. So one big step has been in the past years to start sharing information on cyber attacks, on attacks pattern and so on, because um, it's just so stupid if you don't do. This, the, and you asked about the, the problem, why is, it, you know, why is it so difficult? Because the mentality of the people is a different one. Need to share, need to know. And this is, I, I think, the biggest barrier to break up. And then if we talk about um, in digitalization more broadly, I think you know you don't have to develop the same tools again and again and again. So it's very simple. The cure is very simple. The problem is the mindset to get there, right? And then we have different interests. But but in the in the past years when I've been in the Ministry of Defense, actually that road has been started, and the collaboration between the various European nations is a lot more um, and a lot higher than in many other fields. So I'm I'm, I'm pretty optimistic on that one, as far as I have optimism left. So, um, and then I think it was um, Anna and also your question from the two alumni, so to say, on, on, on regulation GDPR. For me, GDPR is the start to get to a European framework how to deal with personal information and with data. And it's good that we have it. And yes, we can start and think about whether it's too much or too little, but at least we have a European point of view on regulation. And I know from many discussions with companies, with, with organizations, then this is a good thing. Yes, some of the, of the very small companies, they suffer like crazy. But think about yourself. I got, I don't know, the day it started, maybe, maybe 20, 40, 30 emails. Do you still want to opt in or not? And I've been, I've been watching myself. Did I just press the button? Did I look at it? And what is the policy behind it? So I think it's a good start. And the question which is, I mean, it's one of the core and most difficult questions currently at hand in regulation, is how to deal with data regulation. I'm not sitting here and saying, I, I got the answer all right, because it is very difficult. But um, maybe on the point of data, do we have enough data? Um, GDPR does not contradict data sharing. No, it's only that it, it, you need to take out the personal information. And to train an AI system, and I've, um, you know, I did my PhD in neural networks. Uh, today we call them AI. You know, way back then we just called them neural networks. And they need data, but they also can take surrogate data. So own, own data you created. And to take out the personal information, you know, this is not the problem. So GDPR for me is not a contradiction to, to data sharing and doing the right thing. What is the problem? It's also, by the way, not to B2B sector. B2B sector is all fine. The problem is the big B2C platforms. So what do we do with the Googles, with the Amazons of the world? And for me, the, the, the problem is as long as they sit on their own data, 
develop their own algorithms, control the algorithm, they have a monopoly which prevents innovation. That's the biggest problem, because people cannot start to invent different algorithms. So we depend, take Amazon, we, prepare, we depend on their algorithm to present what we want to buy next. So to find a regulation which helps to open up the innovation, so the, the competition about innovation of algorithm that we need to achieve, you know, I come from physics, I'm a nerd, um, I have no idea how, you know, how to do the regulations, but that must be the driver behind it. So an economic thinking and rational to get the market innovative again. Great. Constance? On the European army and populism. <laughs> Look, the, the, the reason that I think it's unhelpful to use this term is that it is a trigger for the the populists and the nationalists in Europe, because it so obviously raises the question of sovereignty. I mean, if we if we were just you know if we if, we're, if we were acting in a politics-free zone in Europe, yeah, and we had to redesign the security and defense of Europe in a blue sky environment, we would probably very quickly agree that we don't need 46 air forces and blue water navies and things like that. And we would probably very quickly agree that a European army might make sense. Except as long as we have a European Union that consists of nation states that have devolved some, but not all elements of their sovereignty to the European Union, that is not a useful way to go. And it is therefore also not useful to talk about it. Yeah, it is simply, it's an intellectual and political distraction at a time when we have incredibly important decisions to take now. Now, there are a lot of things happening in the European space that are really interesting. There is the PESCO proposals of the European Union. There is the European Global Strategy. And a lot of national white books, including the German White Book of 2017, reference these developments and try to work with them. That's useful. Unfortunately, it's also incredibly hard to understand because you, you, you so quickly get into very weedy problems that even the specialists have a hard time grasping. Yeah. But the, the, the fundamental problem of European defense and security is, is not in figuring out the configuration and generation of forces, but how to resolve the sovereignty problems. In other words, who gets to say when we act and when we don't intervene? And I think I worry that, particularly in Paris, the thinking is that the great powers in Europe and with the exit of Great Britain, that would be France and Germany, and maybe France directing Germany, I don't know, will tell everybody else what to do. And the mood in Europe is not such that that is ever going to happen at this point. In fact, it's the reverse. If, if anything, our neighbors are looking at us again with um, unhappiness, with some despair at our inability to resolve our political, economic, and social problems, and suspicion. And I mean real suspicion. The, let me give you an example, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline project. We do not have a lot of friends in Europe as regards this pipeline project. I think, as far as I can see, it's the Austrians who think this is a good thing. Everybody else is saying, well, wait a moment, aren't you sort of cutting out Ukraine out of your energy supply? Aren't you giving the Russians a handle over us? And what does that mean? Now, I that when I say this, I'm not saying I buy into the American or the Polish criticism of this project. But I, but I, 
I'm a journalist enough, I'm realist enough to see what this has done to Germany's standing in Europe. And if anything has damaged our standing and has sown mistrust, it's this. And I have yet to see an argument that convinces me that this is a project that is good for Europe, that Europeanize, that, it, that it, it is possible to Europeanize energy supply with this kind of thing rather than undermine it. That's just, I'm just giving you this as an example of the real world problems that we're dealing with. And frankly, I would like the French to pay more attention to what's going on in the East, to the threat from the East, to the feelings of the Balts and the Poles and the Czechs and the Romanians. We have security threats there that go from the Baltics to the Black Sea. And conversely, I would also like the Nordics and the French to pay attention to what's happening into the Mediterranean. The reason why we have the government in Italy that we do is that we have left the Italians alone with immigration from Libya and with the crisis in Libya. In other words, you talk about a European army is pointless as long as we don't manage to bridge the deep divides that have arisen in Europe over security and economic policy. Uh, okay, thank you very much, Constanze. We don't have the time for me to disagree with you. Uh, uh, just to say that, uh, but we will find other opportunities for that. I happen to believe that the idea of a European army as, a, as the long-term vision is not such a bad thing because it's important for people to know where do we want to end up. And uh, trying to end up in, a, in an end state, the conditionalities of which you described is, uh, uh, is difficult, uh, but I think it's not, it's not at all useless. I think it's important to, to clear our minds. We have, to, we, have, we, have time for, we have time for one or two more questions. We need to We can end have an own panel minutes. on European Army. And uh, <laughs> the um, gentleman all the way back in the, in, the, in the white shirt, yeah, yeah, right. All right, uh, my name is Florian Kirmes. I'm a student from the Europe University Viadrina. And actually, my question is a follow-up on the last discussion. Um, considering the measures that already have been taken by the EU, considering the PESCO agreement, the European Defence Fund, the CARD uh, mechanism, and how realistic you think that they're going to find credible answers to meet the challenges posed by Russia and unconventional warfare. Okay. Is there a, another really brief question? Yes, please. Thanks. My name is Moritz. I have a question for both the optimists in the room. Um, I would like to contextualize two things. One, we've had the discussion about the combined European security strategy. And on the other hand, we've heard about AI and how Germany and Europe are kind of in a tight spot between the US and and China. And I was wondering, since AI is a deeply strategically important technology, dual use technology in many ways, what is Germany or Europe to do, considering that on the one hand we find more integrated strategy unlikely, and on the other hand we kind of have to leverage probably the size of Europe, the data, the market, to be able to develop AI in any competitive sense? Thank you. Great question. Uh, that was the last one, by the way. Um, I, I will give both of you each a maximum of two minutes. Oops. Um, Moritz, to your ones, um, 
I think AI is much broader than military area. And if we take it much broader than the military area, then there's a lot happening in Europe and it can converge. So I would take it out of that corner because that's not the way we win that, um, that one. So that was brief. And then Florian to CART, um, EDF and PESCO. Um, no. So your question was, will it be the right answer to Russia and the unconventional warfare? No. But is it a good thing? Yes, definitely. Because it's doing the right thing, trying to converge in weapon system development, in strategies, in you know tra training and so on, in the right in the right areas. But its focus is not on unconventional warfare. But it's it's attacking it's or it's tackling at the basis um, what military services do. So um, I'm I'm actually very proud what has been created there, and I believe it's the right way to go. And I think finally we don't all we I, I don't think we agree that the European Army is the right end vision. The and there are many good steps now currently happening. The question is, what is what is the right talk at the right time? And I think there um, it, it is a question of feeling, and I'm, I'm more in Constance's camp there, that currently what we need is let's do the right work and let's tackle these questions. Okay. Let me try and combine an answer to the two questions by going to the 10,000-foot 10, level, <laughs> um, which is fundamentally this. We have the choice today between preserving our open societies liberal representative democracies and rule-based international orders, or doing the reverse. And we're already seeing other countries and great powers doing the reverse. If we want to preserve what we have, if we think that that is good for us, in fact, if we think that's the only decent way to live, then we need to make our operating systems more resilient. AI in this context is ambivalent because it can both help make us more resilient and it can undermine our resilience. And what we have to figure out is a whole of operating system approach where we look at all of its vulnerabilities, figure out what we need to repair, figure out what we need to rebuild, and figure out what we need to reinvent. I'm fairly sure that AI plays a role in all of this. Thank you. Oh, that's great. Th thank you, Constanze Stelzenmüller. Thank you, Katrin Suder. Let's give a hand, if you want, uh, to this panel. I think... Thank you, thank you. This makes me feel really good about this because I think this is a great start and a promising start for the kinds of activities that um, I and my associates, my colleagues are here in, in the faculty and in, 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 in the Center on uh, International Security Policy, what we have in mind doing. We, we have in mind doing not only serious academic research, um, sitting in a, you know, behind closed doors. We want to do this sort of thing um, on a regular basis, bringing the smartest minds not only from Berlin, but also from elsewhere uh, uh, in here to, um, to have these types of discussions, including on where strategy and geostrategy meets technology and politics and also domestic politics. So thank you for being here and come again. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find more on our website at herty-school.org.